So Manfred is, you know, interrogating this peasant lad. His name is Theodore. Um, Wait, we didn't find that out yet. <sighs> no. No. No, Abby. Yeah, well, you might as well reveal everything. If you <laughs> does it matter? Does it matter? Yeah! Why does it matter that his name is Theodore? I don't know, but it does. Just start again. <laughs> oh, you're taking the role of the director here. Okay. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Sticky Wicket over here is uh, Daniel. Um, uh, the end zone over there is Abby. What's a Sticky Wicket? It's a difficult situation, proverbially, but I imagine it's a wicket that is hard to, for whatever reason, is, is hard for a bowler to hit in cricket. Okay, tells me nothing. Also, by way of an announcement, I just want to remind everyone that we at Aston University are opening up a new MA English program in 2023, so please do apply. It's particularly geared for teachers of English as well, so if you're an English teacher in the Midlands area, uh, this might be a really great program for you, and maybe Daniel and I will end up teaching you. <laughs> we also have been putting up some polls on Twitter for our potential season four. We decided that if we do that in 2023, we're going to let the audience pick one of the texts we do. So we have, a, we have a bit of a tournament bracket, and every week we put up a different pair that you can vote on. So we've only just started. Please go over to Twitter and vote. We are guest starring on Dr. Kate Lister's podcast, Betwixt the Sheets, talking about something uh, very relevant to this. We're, we're talking about the history of Gothic literature and sexuality. So if you want to tune into that please give us a listen. If, if, if this piques your interest and you want to know more about the gothic. I am looking forward to the guest spot because you're sitting on the big sofa and walking in and, you know, like the house band playing Mozart's <laughs> Overture to Don Giovanni. The, the soft rock the version. The easy listening slash yes. soft rock version of uh, Don Giovanni. Okay, Daniel. So what is our text today? Let me start with a quote from a friend of the podcast, Immanuel Kant. Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Jesus Christ. Since the middle of the 18th century, we've gone all in for reason. Superstition, ignorance, they're things of the past. And it's down to some rather spiffing blokes. Isaac Newton, Voltaire, Carl Linnaeus, Adam Smith, Thomas Jefferson. These unimpeachable paragons of enlightened virtue have reshaped our world by touching the true face of reality and putting paid to superstition. You know, things are all pretty much sewn up for humanity, right? Right. Wrong! <laughs> the Enlightenment Project was running off course from day one. Since the middle of the 18th century, the rot had already set in. And we can pin it on one man, Horace Walpole. He is to blame for greed, lust, ignorance, and terror still calling the shots. And you know what? 
We love it. <laughs> we absolutely love it. And he did it by writing the first gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto, 1765. You're a sick man. <laughs> so, it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. The trigger warnings are... Well, just the the whole gothic playbook, right? Death, violence, hauntings, uh, a lot of sort of sexual assault and forced marriage, and just general misogyny. So, you know, buckle in, buttercup. Would you like to do some background, friend? Horace Walpole. He was the son of the UK's first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. But yeah, Horace was also a politician. He was a Whig MP for some constituencies in Norfolk and Cornwall. But he was kind of generally one of those kind of classic 18th century aesthete aristocrat types, so kind of a man of letters. I think the general consensus is that he was probably somewhere on the sort of queer spectrum. You have my interest. I was kind of wondering about that because I know nothing about Walpole, but I was reading this book going, is the author gay? Because, oh boy, he likes looking at men in yeah. the book. The women, he's like, yeah, sure, she's attractive and then we hear not a word more about it a sexy lady walked in and then i saw the thighs of the most handsome <laughs> <laughs> it's like that isn't it yeah so he based the castle of otranto on a dream set in an ancient castle he was in this creepy castle and he was like on the uppermost banister of a great staircase i saw a gigantic hand in armor in the evening i sat down and began to write without knowing in the least what i intended to say or relate so, he also liked sort of architectural history, didn't he? And he had that creepy sort of gothic re revival house, Strawberry Hill. So, you know, it's not like the White House or something, is it? Every other 18th century person has a kind of Palladian, neoclassical type house. Walpole's is like a sort of creepy castle. Oh, I love his little goth heart. I yeah. think I would do the same. Well, he invented it, didn't he? So, in the preface to the first edition of the book, Walpole claimed that he had translated a tranto from an ancient Italian manuscript. And he's like, well, the story clearly can't be true, but it's probably rooted in kind of medieval culture and morality. So it's therefore probably, you know, indirectly based on a true story. Like every sort of horror text going forward, he kind of invented that. And I think this is really interesting, even though he's he's completely taking the piss. He did not translate this from anything. He just made it up, as, as Daniel said, from a dream that he had. But I think this is so cool because we can sort of trace this directly to modern horror with the sort of found footage story. It's not a true story. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah in the second edition, he, he in the preface, he's like, no, fair cop, I wrote it. Uh, it was an attempt to blend the two kinds of romance, the ancient and the modern. So he wanted a bit of fantasy and a bit of realism. You know, you got your fantasy and my realism. <laughs> in SMFMS terms, it's sort of like if Beowulf met Pamela. That's really funny you say that because in the analysis later, I compare certain elements of this to Gawain and the Green Knight and Maul Flanders. He's clearly firing on all cylinders yeah. medieval and he's firing on all cylinders 18th century enlightenment, which I, th I think is really interesting that we sort of came to that independently. Manfred, Prince of Otranto had one son and one daughter, the latter a most beautiful virgin, aged 18. It was called Matilda. Conrad, the son, was three years younger, a homely youth, sickly and of no promising disposition. So Conrad's a goddamn mess. He's like if God sneezed a person. And am I, am I making this up? Um, do they say that Conrad was born prematurely or am I, did, am I missing that? that? I mean, he's Italian, so we'll call it al dente. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's the Middle Ages, and uh, dynasty-obsessed Italian princeling Manfred is keen to keep Otranto in the family. So, yeah, he's arranged for this weedy son of his, Conrad, to get married to Isabella, <laughs> daughter of the Marquis of Vicenza. So if we're setting the scene here and we're establishing the characters, I need to say that I think Walpole's original conceit for Manfred were, what if cocaine were a prince? That's his vibe. Continue. Yeah, also, yeah. Daniel, are you gonna do you gonna do an accent the whole time? I just want to check into how committed to this bit you are. Well, I just said he's a baila. That's it. That was literally it. Conrad is Manfred's darling. Didn't care about his daughter, or indeed his put-upon wife Hippolyta, whom he resents for having only provided him with one wimpy heir. So Hippolyta says, like, mm, is it right that Conrad marries so young? And then. Yeah, she, she's worried that his first sexual encounter will kill him, so we're not sure if this is going to be a wedding or a snuff film. But Hippolyta never received any other answer than reflections on her own sterility. She'd given him but one heir. So Jesus Christ. I mean, and, and the daughter. Girls don't count. Manfred is even more fixated on dynastic continuity than your average aristocrat. Why? Uh, yeah, good question. He has a dread of seeing accomplished an ancient prophecy, which was said to have pronounced that the castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it. So, so your typical gothic novel prophecy mumbo-jumbo, which I'm sure will be made painfully apparent in eight minutes? Yeah, his hoping. <laughs> Except if we're lucky. <laughs> so Manfred basically needs this wedding to happen now to get some babies out of Isabella to consolidate their position before, you know, Conrad, who makes little Lord Fauntleroy look positively butch, <laughs> uh, gets knocked over by a stiff breeze. So in short, Manfred's all coked up probably and has got baby fever. So we open on Conrad's wedding day and his birthday too, apparently. So we're killing two birds with one cake. That is Daniel's joke. I like it. The wedding starts. The bride is at the altar. Oh, she looks beautiful. All the guests are there. There are blenders and flatware wrapped up on the gift table. There's a, a string quartet playing a cover of some Coldplay. That's classy. There's, yeah. There is classy. You know, there's champagne warming in the hot Italian sun. But there's something missing, Daniel. Go on. Conrad. Where is he? Our, our little child groom here. He's on the way, surely. I picture that he is singing out the window like that weedy boy in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, yeah, yeah, he is like that. <laughs> yeah. But then you know nothing good has happened when a servant runs in screaming something incoherent about Conrad. And you just know that this dweeb has tripped over his own shoelaces and fallen and broken every bone in his body. Or he's come down with a slight chill and is now on the verge of death. Or maybe he's just spontaneously turned to ash because he's that kind of character. Well, let me tell you, friend, whatever you think you know happened to Conrad... You do not know. So in a series of rapidly escalating improbabilities, Conrad has been crushed to death by a giant helmet the size of a house that has spontaneously appeared or fallen from the sky or has been summoned by magic or something. Yeah, I saw that coming. So everyone rushes out to the courtyard and sees Conrad dead. Rest in peace, Cracker Bones. Manfred saw a group of his servants endeavouring to raise something that appeared to him a mountain of sable plumes. Stepping closer, he beheld his child dashed to pieces and almost buried under an, an enormous helmet and hundred times more large than any cask 
ever made for a human being. That's so uh, ridiculous, isn't it? I love this kind of stupid writing. And the first thing Manfred says when relocating his beloved son's mangled corpse is to ask, is Isabella okay? <laughs> hey, baby doll, how are you holding up? And if that creeps you out, then you, friend, are in full possession of your faculties. A young peasant remarks that the helmet looks a little bit like an enlarged version of that worn by the black marble statue of Alfonso the Good, uh, who was the last prince of Otranto from the previous dynasty. What's more, the statue's helmet has gone missing. <gasps> yeah, it's the traffic going on it now. Manfred kicks off, and he's Yo, like, "What the f did you just say?" Yeah, well, yeah. Who said that? Who said that? Uh, and he points at the peasant boy who said it. He says, "Like, you're a sorcerer, a warlock, a wizard man. You're the guy that caused Comrade's death." And he's like, "You're going to be imprisoned." And in a delicious irony, you'll be imprisoned <laughs> under the big helmet. Okay, so first of all, God forbid someone try to find out what happened to kill his son. Also, if the guy is a full-on, like, necromancer, as Manfred implies, why would you imprison him under the thing that he theoretically made happen in the first place? The age of reason speaks. We're not in that anymore. So Manfred goes to his room for a bit of a sulk, as you do when your only son and heir has been murdered, and his daughter, Matilda, shows up, and she's like... Daddy, shall I comfort you in your hour of need? For I am a good and virtuous daughter who cares not for herself but only for others. And he's like, Can you grow a penis and become my heir? No. Can I come in? You sure can't, friend. And he sends her away. Instead, he summons Isabella, his almost daughter in law, to his bedchamber, and uh, they have the following conversation. Quote, Draw your tears, young lady. You have lost your bridegroom. Yes, cruel fate, and I have lost the hopes of my race. But Conrad was not worthy of your beauty. He was a sickly, puny child, end quote. So, not worthy of the dynasty. Honestly, I bet Conrad was breastfed till he was like 13 years old. This that makes you strong. I don't think he was breastfed long enough. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry, we're tapping into Daniel's history here. How, how old were you? 15, 16? Uh, to this very day. <laughs> so he continues, quote, I offer you myself. Hippolyta is no longer my wife. I divorce her from this hour. Too long has she cursed me by her unfruitfulness. My fate depends on having sons. And this night, I trust, will give a new date to my hope. So basically, whoa, like, you know, you look thoroughly impregnable. Yeah. Impregnatable? You're, you're as Both. impregnable as this castle is impregnable. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I don't know what that that's means. A, that's a classic medieval chat line. <laughs> so, um, as romantic as a proposition as this is, Isabella's like, don't you need some kind of paperwork for a divorce? Or And Manfred is like, I've got proximity to a uterus and a dream. That's all I need. <laughs> Isabella says, thanks but no thanks and Manfred is really surprised by this because frankly who wouldn't want a husband old enough to be your father who's already married and who hasn't blinked in four days <laughs> so he attempts some light assault apparently this is the same universe as Harry Potter because all of a sudden a portrait of Manfred's grandfather comes to life and distracts him quote at that instant the portrait of Manfred's grandfather which hung over the bench where they had been sitting 
uttered a deep sigh and heaved its breast. Isabella uses this moment to run off, and it's, you know, it's almost like the cast members of Pamela are taking a detour through this book because it ends up in this really rapey chase scene with him right behind her. Isabella <laughs> needs to get to safety. I want you guys to know that every time Daniel does that, I'm you making wince. the jerk off <laughs> motion. <laughs> the castle gates are locked and guarded. Oh no! Like any good castle gates should be, really. However, she remembers that there is a subterraneous passage. Of course. Leading from the vaults of the castle to the church of St. Nicholas. Ho, ho, ho. So that's <laughs> nice, isn't it? So she thinks, like, great, I'll, I can hide in the church of St. Nicholas. I've just got to get through the tunnel. Because, you know, once I'm in the church, even Manfred wouldn't dare to profane the sacredness of the place with violence. Ooh. Foreshadowing. Uh, get the old horn in there. Also, are you, girl, are you sure about that? Because my dude's got a bit of a hypertension issue, an erection, and a go-get-em attitude. <laughs> are you sure? So, the lower part of the castle was hollowed into several intricate cloisters, and it was not easy for one under so much anxiety to find the door that opened into the cavern. An awful silence reigned throughout those subterraneous regions, except now and then some blasts of wind that shook the doors she had passed, and which grating on the rusty hinges were re-echoed through that long labyrinth of darkness. <laughs> yeah. So, Isabella's deep in the catacombs. Oh no! Her lamp's blown out! She kind of gropes her way into a moonlit vault. Someone else is there. <gasps> Isabella initially believes the stranger to be the ghost of Conrad. The prefab I have here is that is a rare instance when a ghost would say boo and the person being haunted would say it back in a different tone. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the ghost of Comrade. But whoever he is, he helps her to find her way through the tunnels. They find the trapdoor into the church. Then they can hear armoured feet slapping on the cobbles. <laughs> Manfred's coming. Isabella escapes. Uh, oh no, she lets the door swing shut, trapping her benefactor on the other side. Manfred, he's here. And he's not impressed. He thinks he's caught Isabella. Oh, it's just that peasant lad from earlier. The one in the helmet jail. He's got out. Oh my god, he is a necromancer. No, there is a rational reason for this. <laughs> when the helmet was lowered onto him, it cracked a hole in the ground through which he could escape. So, a shoddy foundation. Yeah. Manfred is interrogating this nameless peasant who has escaped his clutches, uh, only to be caught again. And then... Two of Manfred's servants rush in and say, Hey, we had to break off our search for Princess Isabella because some seriously weird is happening in the portrait gallery. And Manfred, who's kind of roid ragey, he's like, What kind of weird shit? And they say, Okay, so remember that giant helmet that smashed your son into a million pieces today? Refresh my memory. <laughs> now there's a giant armored leg hopping around your gallery. The prefab I have here is leg day, but taking the piss. So the servants are like, it's it's like some giant knight who's coming to life piece by piece. I think you might want to call a priest and exercise that shit. My thought though is, do you think you can get a discount on exorcisms if you have more than one ghostly body part hanging around your house? Like, is it a two for one uh, deal? They you around, they say it's all one. Well, that's what I was wondering. Is it like a, a two body parts are technically part of the same ghost? Or if exorcisms in general cover any and all spirits within the home? 
I did not learn this in my 12 years at catechism class, so thanks for nothing, Catholicism. It's like an insurance thing, isn't it? It's just a general house coverage. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how many ghosts are in there, how dismembered the ghosts are, we can get a priest in probably by, you know, I am first thing tomorrow morning. I am sure there are accountants for the church that specialize just in this. Matilda is mithering in her bedroom. And a servant, Bianca, turns up. So they're like, oh, well, now Comrade's dead. Manfred will be pretty keen to marry Matilda off ASAP so as to propagate the dynasty. Oh, no, that'll be awful, won't it? And Bianca's like, well, marriage isn't all bad. And you might get a hottie. Well, yeah, but, uh, but come, madam. Suppose tomorrow morning he was to send for you to the great council chamber and there you should find at his elbow... A lovely young prince with with large black eyes, a smooth white forehead. That's what all the girls like, isn't it? and manly curling locks like jet on his head, even. In short, madam, a young hero resembling the picture of the good Alfonso in the gallery. So Alfonso was a looker in his day. Matilda is constantly looking at the portrait of Alfonso. That's why Bianca mentions this. But she's like, oh, I'm only interested in him because I think that my destiny is somehow related to him. It's not, you know, any kind of... Glory. It's not a sex thing. It's not a sex thing. No, it's a dinner, uh, di no, uh, destiny thing. There's this weird thing that I don't believe ever gets fully explained where her mother forces her to go down to his tomb and pray over him every day, even in bad weather. And Matilda won't say why because it's a secret. Also, can we give a little queer reading in here? Because the author and his imaginary dream boats are, you know, getting yeah, real hot and heavy. Proper armada of imaginary dream boats, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, just the women are, as I said before, they're not given the same sort of sexy gaze no. as the men. And I, I like the book for that. Considering how f***ed up gothic literature is going to become after this, in terms of how we look at women's bodies, this is a surprisingly refreshing yeah, thing. Yeah, where's some... Yeah, I don't like that. Something for me, please. Uh, yeah, where are all the boobies? <laughs> While chatting, Bianca and Matilda hear a strange noise. A voice. <gasps> Spooky. Is anyone in the room below? Bianca says. Nobody has dared to lie there since the great astrologer that was your brother's tutor drowned himself. For certain, madam, his ghost and the young princes are now met in the chamber below. That's such a great line. The astrologer who drowned himself. And we never find out what no, happened. Yeah, so, yeah. What's going on about that? They're like, I feel like an yeah. astrologer, did he know, did he predict something bad? He was like, do myself in. Oh, that would actually be cool. If this book were deeper, we could attribute that sort of, you know, well, issue. It could be that, couldn't it? Because, I mean, I don't want to, but stuff happens. Issues about fate and... Yeah, yeah stuff's, stuff's going to happen yeah. until the astrologer might be like, I'm on the losing side. Well, also, do the astrologer and Conrad not have anything better to do with their respective afterlives? Of course, Conrad's only unfinished business would be that he didn't quite figure out the hypotenuse of a constellation. What's the square root of Cassiopeia? Maybe you don't think well, learning for its own sake is important, but I think if I were a spirit, I would love to get into maths and stuff. What a fucking nerd. Yeah. But yeah, so apparently they're thinking it's, you know, it's yet another ghost. They're, again, gonna get such a discount buying their exorcisms in bulk. This place is a Costco for ghosts. Except, turns out, it's not a ghost downstairs. It's just that hot peasant dude. You know, he's apparently escaped Manfred's captivity after being caught again. I thought he was in the cellars, but okay, I guess not. He's escaped. No need to cover that scene. Uh, and Matilda, she she pervs on him a little bit. She likes the cut of his jib. He kind of looks like that Alfonso guy. 
She's got a type, we'll say. Forehead goes from here to... Oh, he's got a forehead for days. <laughs> so Manfred is still raging somewhere, and this priest comes in to talk to him, and he's like, listen, I want to let you know that Isabella has taken sanctuary in the church, and she's she's told me why, and you're, you're doing wrong. But then their whole conversation gets interrupted. Manfred's like, wait, I smell a necromancer on the loose, and his name is Asshole. What if that wizard peasant guy is actually Isabella's secret lover? And I'm like, hey, Hideki Mitsui, how are you liking coming out of left field? Because that is quite the leap, sir. But Manfred can't hear my questions because he's too busy screaming, bring me my twice-captured necromancer. This book is is bonkers. The peasant is brought before Manfred and uh, the priest, Jerome, and Manfred interrogates him a little bit more. Who art thou? The peasant's like, just just one of your average peasants called Theodore. That famous Italian name. Yeah, well, like Manfred or Conrad. And so, yeah, he's very sort of a spritzatura. He's pretty pretty cool, pretty, a pretty cool guy. He's kind of like the Fonz or something. <laughs> yeah. So Matilda passes by while this interrogation is going on. And she gives Theodore another good eyeball. She's already eyeballed him once. Now for the second of the eyeballing. One for each eyeball. For a peasant, he is notably noble, handsome, and commanding. Mm. And is maybe even a prince in disguise. And he looks just like the portrait of Alfonso. So, Chekhov's genetics. Oh, or... I just thought it meant flat. <laughs> <laughs> Manfred accuses Theodore of being Isabella's lover and declares, I will see his head this instant severed from his body. <laughs> it's this course ruling that Theodore can eat shit and die. Daniel, I'm starting to think that Manfred is the problem. Feudalism that's at fault, isn't it? It's not Manfred. He's just a victim as much as anyone else. So, Theodore is a about to get axed. The priest gives him his last confession, and Theodore is all very whatevs. And in fact, he is so whatevs, he even forgives Manfred for having him executed. And I can't tell if he is so holy that they're going to name a whole street after him in heaven, or if he's so existential that they'll name a whole street after him in France. Regardless, he takes it all in his stride as part of God's plan. Lots of streets are named after people in France, so I put my money on that. <laughs> I don't even know if they have streets in heaven. They do. Some boulevards, a lot of a lot of squares, but there there are some streets. The etymology of boulevard is related to city walls. Okay. It's heaven embattled. My brother in Christ, have you not read Paradise Lost? Oh yeah, all the devils. Okay, so after the devils got beaten, they knocked the walls down and turned it into a big boulevard. Yeah, you learned something new today about um. The town planning of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so as they're sharpening their axes or whatever to chop his head off. Theodore starts to unbutton his shirt. It's all pretty sexy. Matilda's looking at him. We're looking at him. Walpole's definitely looking at him. Uh, and then, just in case you were worried that this book hadn't had enough cliches, which I suppose it kind of invents, Theodore's unbuttoned shirt reveals a super significant birthmark yeah. in the shape of an arrow. So find the phallus much. And the priest recognizes this guy at once because of the birthmark. He's the priest's long-lost son. Oh my god! <laughs> I like that he invented the cliches and they're already cliches. That's the great thing about this book. So Manfred's like, quote, How can he be thy son? Is it consistent with thy profession or reputed sanctity to avow a peasant's offspring for the fruit of thy irregular amours? Best kind of amours. <laughs> <laughs> irregular? <laughs> I don't know what that means! Do you care to enlighten me? 
listeners at home, those of you who are in on the circle, will... (laughs) (laughs) The whatever f***ed up Midlands orgy circuit you are on, I want nothing to do with it. And the priest is like, yeah, don't worry about it. Also, I'm the Count of Falconara, which, huge if true. So Manfred is just like, oh, okay, this is an interesting curveball. I will spare the life of Theodore if this priest slash count Jerome Jerome brings out Isabella from sanctuary uh, because Manfred has got an erection that ghosts and executions cannot wither. And he says, quote, unhappy prince that I am. Holy father, will you not assist me with your prayers? And Jerome says, look, I'll put in a good word for you with the man upstairs with the big JC on the condition that you pardon Theodore. He's still under arrest though, isn't he, Theodore? Yes. So just as he's having this big change of heart, It gets interrupted when a rider comes up to the gates and says he's a herald from another lord who calls Manfred a usurper and demands that he meet this lord out on the field of battle. I want the bit. I want the bit where the herald talks. In the name of his lord, Frederick Marcus of Vicenza, he demands the Lady Isabella, daughter of that prince, whom thou hast basely and treacherously got into thy power by bribing her false guardians during his absence. And he requires thee to resign the principality of Otranto, which thou hast usurped from the said Lord Frederick, the nearest of the blood to the rightful, last Lord Alfonso the Good. If thou dost instantly comply with these just demands, he defies thee to single combat to the last extremity. So that's how Harold's talk, isn't it? I want to do my Harold voice. Manfred's in trouble. Daniel. How many hours did you practice that in the mirror? That was literally the first time. Liar! Yeah, the first time. I just got natural herald in me. It turns out, so this lord who's come up to the gates with his whole retinue is this renowned and invincible knight. The knight of the gigantic saber. Can we find the phallus, please? So, Manfred's in trouble. All of his chickens are coming home to roost. It's true. Frederick does have a good claim to Otranto, and also it's kind of true that Manfred got Isabella to visit Otranto by dodgy means, because Frederick had recently been widowed, he went on a crusade to celebrate his widowhood. Well, far be it for me to tell anyone how to grieve, Daniel. Well, exactly. So, Frederick went on a crusade, and he's been missing, presumed captured by infidels, and it left his daughter vulnerable, so Manfred was like... Might as well capitalise on this. Yeah, he bribed Isabella's guardians to agree with the match yeah. with Conrad, but now daddy's home, he gon' crack the whip. So Manfred's got to pr- play this delicate situation with finesse in time-honoured Manfredian fashion. The knightly retinue arrives in the castle, and I love this bit. It's a very long quote. It's truly absurd. I thought it was very entertaining. In a few minutes, the cavalcade arrived. First came two harbingers with wands. Are they going to do some close-up magic later? Next, a herald, followed by two pages and two trumpets. Then, an hundred foot guards. I read this as 100 foot guards. The giant disembodied knight would finally have somebody to play with. (laughs) These were attended by as many horse. After them, 50 foot men, clothed in scarlet and black, the colors of the knight. Then, a led horse. Don't know what that means. Two heralds on each side of a gentleman on horseback bearing a banner with the arms of Vicenza and Otranto quarterly. Two knights, keeps going, two knights habited in complete armor, their beavers down. Uh, uh, beg your pardon? Yep, their beavers down. Comrades to the principal knight. Are you compensating for something? The squires of the two knights carrying their shields and devices. 
the knight's own squire, and hundred gentlemen bearing an enormous sword. Sir, honestly, an enormous sword. And seeming to faint under the weight of it. Hmm, same. The knight himself on a chestnut steed, in complete armour, his lance in the rest, his face entirely concealed by his visor, which was sur surmounted by a large plume of scarlet and black feathers. That's a great way of making an entrance. Fifty... There's more! Fifty foot guards with drums and trumpets closed the procession, which wheeled off to the right and left to make room for the principal knight. Now, what's going on with that? I mean, Daniel, if a girl you know has been captured and needs you there instantly to rescue her, you gotta roll over there in style. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, this is not a kind of... I will find you, and I will. I have a very particular set of skills. This is like <laughs> I have a very particular set of dandyishly dressed followers. <laughs> so a lot of airbeds are going to need blowing up. Manfred tries to be hospitable. The visiting knights—they're a bit frosty, aren't they? They're rude. Then the gigantic sword burst from its supporters, and falling to the ground opposite to the helmet, remained immovable. I like that the ghost is like, I'll show you a gigantic saber, bringing a knife to a ghost fight. So Manfred is, you know, used to spooky things happening, so he's not particularly startled when the, the giant statue, you know, the, flings its sword or whatever. So he carries on attempting to negotiate with the knights. He tells them about Conrad's death, which happened, what, three hours ago? I think a day's passed, isn't it? He's got a lot on his plate. <laughs> Manfred says, quote, I would submit to anything for the good of my people. Were it not the best... The only way to extinguish the feuds between our families. If I were to take the Lady Isabella to wife? Yeah. A little bit of the art of the deal. But yeah, he's just very good at it, yeah. Is he? Because he's trying so hard to be reasonable. But you cannot do that much cocaine and pull that off. He's not, he's not reasonable. He's wearing reasonability like an ill-fitting prom dress. And the knights sense it and are just really not buying his crap. Everyone's gone off to find Isabella. Except Matilda. She sneaks up to Theodore's cell and releases him. Oh, he's in and out of jail like a fiddler's elbow. One more imprisonment and he will get a free toilet wine on his punch card. Yes. <laughs> Do fiddler's elbows go to prison a lot? No, but they're in and out a lot. You're ah, missing the... Right, I understand now. She's taken more than a shine to Theodore and she tells him to fly to Sanctuary. And he's like, to Sanctuary? No, princess. Sanctuaries are for helpless damsels, or for criminals. <laughs> Theodore's soul is free from guilt, nor will wear the appearance of it. Give me a sword, lady, and thy father shall learn that Theodore scorns an ignominious fight. Flight, that is. <laughs> While Paul's deploying the combat twinks. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. Also, what is the Chad voice you were mm. just doing? Mm. <laughs> you sound like you should be in one of those 80s rock and roll cartoon epics. You know the ones. No. So Theodore, he's not having any of it. But this doesn't distract them from each other. An interview in which the hearts of both are drunk so deeply of passion, which both now tasted for the first time. There's a lot of hand kissing and stuff, isn't there going on? I just... <sighs> my critique is that I just don't think this scene captured the sexiness of prison visitation rooms. <laughs> so, Theodore goes off to hide in the woods. I thought he said he wasn't going to run away. It's different. So, he goes and seeks the gloomiest shades as best suited to the pleasing melancholy that reigned in his mind. We'll win there, won't we? Isabella is hiding there too! Theodore vows to protect 
her virtuous delicacy and guides her to a cave where he can keep her safe mm. into the most private cavity of these rocks. Ooh. There we go. We've got the big sword. Time for a bit of equal opportunities representation. Uh, nice, nice vaginal. Can you find the labia? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, my goodness, guides her into a cave into the cavity of the rocks. The first time I read this, I really thought that he was in love with Isabella because of this whole scene. But he's he's in love with Matilda. He's just a good good knight. Just knights protect the damsels. Guiding them into the most private cavity yeah. of these rocks. Yeah. We know what happened in that cavity. What? Let's put up a nice chat. He got all up in them petticoats. I don't like what you're imputing against Oh, me. Daniel, you sexless cow. Meanwhile, the priest, Father Jerome, is debating how to keep his son Theodore alive and Isabella virginal. Too late, I think, when he hears that Manfred's wife, who was perfectly healthy about half an hour ago, has died of convenience and plot points, I guess. No. Hippolyta's like, I didn't even fuck around. Why am I finding out? Doesn't matter. She's dead. Woo, Manfred is a single slice of beefcake. Cue the Austin Powers, I'm single again, baby music. Also, guys, I hate to tell you, but we're going to find out soon enough. Hippolyta is not dead, and this plot point goes absolutely nowhere. Yeah, I didn't even notice. Daniel didn't even notice, and frankly, that all tracks. Unless I've read this wrong, which is very possible in this book, because it is a very difficult book to read. Now we cut back to, quote, the private cavity. What ho? A knight turns up at the cave. Not so private. It's where... hard to get a properly private cavity these days. <laughs> a knight turns up, interrupts them, doing whatever it is they're doing. Probably nothing, because, you know, they're boring. Um, Theodore doesn't know who this knight is. They don't know who he is. Neither of them knows what they want. So naturally, the men get into a sword fight, because, you know, what else do you do? And Theodore just stabs him. Uh, so what this book lacks in deep characterization, it makes up for in patently irrational behavior. Yes. The knight takes off his helmet, and it turns out to be Isabella's daddy, the the knight of the giant saber. What's yeah. his name? Frederick. Frederick. Yeah, and in the parlance of literary sword fights where everything is a phallus, it turns out maybe his saber isn't so gigantic after all. No. Womp womp. What was it size? Does it matter? It's the motion on the ocean. <laughs> so he needs to go to hospital. Guess where the nearest hospital is? A tram toe. Oh yeah, no. back into the lion's den. The gang turn up at the castle, and Matilda is perturbed to see Theodore and Isabella together. Yeah, she doesn't even know that they've been into the most private cavity of the rocks, and no. she's she's very bitch. Better get out of my way, bitch. The Marquis is going to be all right. Hooray. The doctors all come out and they go, your Marquis is going to be fine, don't worry. They all go and visit him. And he is struck by the lovely form of Matilda. Oh, no. Can, do you want to read the, what I wrote here? So Abby wrote, quote, he takes one look at her and goes, um, like, heart eyes. It's kind of, well, I can't really express it because it's like an emoji. It's like, <laughs> I just wanted to see how you could Articulate Heart this. underscore heart. <laughs> there's, a, there's another bit of confusion in the... Well, he, he gets hearts in his eyes like he's in a Tex Avery cartoon. 
This is a bit tech savory in general, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I just I, I I did not expect an evil daughter swap romance. That was not on my gothic bingo card today. We're all hoping, but, but we it, didn't expect it. It should have been. It should Everybody <laughs> gathers around Frederick's hospital bed, and and he tells them his story. So gather around, listeners. Um, so while he was put imprisoned in the Holy Land, he dreamt oh. that his daughter was in trouble back in Italy. The dream told him to go near a wood near Joppa to find out more. He went to visit the forest from the dream and found a hermit there who was dying. The hermit was like, dig in a certain spot. So Frederick went off and did that and found the giant sword, the, the sword of his uh, title. And it was engraved with the following message. Where'er a cask that suits this sword is found, with perils is thy daughter compassed round. Alfonso's blood alone can save the maid. And quiet along restless prince's shade. This know, sounds like know. a shitty cutscene in an RPG yes, that I does. would skip. Yeah. So Manfred's losing it a bit. Why? Were there any warning signs? Yeah, there's all his neighbours. I don't know what the next town is from the chanting. It just seemed like a normal bloke. <laughs> uh, so Manfred's losing it, and he takes a look at Theodore, and he's like, "Oh my God, it's the dreadful spectre of Alfonso. Who is this guy?" Um, Wait. So in, in the mystery about who is Alfonso's true heir, who is this Theodore guy. Walpole has basically given the audience this whole conspiracy theory corkboard setup, but it's literally just one piece of string connected to a picture of Theodore. Yeah. About right? Yeah. We get Theodore's backstory now. Hooray! It's time for backstories. We've just had a backstory! Yeah, I know. It's two, two in a row. Like, like buses, isn't it? <laughs> one backstory comes, there's another one behind it. I was carried at five... No, I've got to do the voice. I was carried at five years of age to Algiers with my mother, who had been taken by corsairs from the coast of Sicily. I, I'm sorry, we're in a pirate narrative yeah, now? Yeah, you it. Pilot on! Last series, there were no pirates. This series, we're getting them. She died of grief in less than a 12 month. She left me with a record of my identity, and years later, Theodore... I'm going off the voice. Theodore made it back to Sicily. His old home had been destroyed. And his dad, he's heard, has retired into religion. So Theodore tramped to Otranto to reunite with his dad. And is very happy and grateful that he has found him. The, the priest, Jerome. Yeah. Everyone thinks Theodore is great, especially Matilda and Isabella. They both have their eyes on the guy. And the, later on, they have a bit of a struggle of generosity. They're both like, no, Theodore clearly prefers you. No, 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 he prefers you. You know, so it's a fun bit. Yeah. I think the only thing that posh women learn in their schooling is how to be archly generous to another woman that they hate. That is all that I learned from reading Russian novels and Jane Austen. So we've had, we've had our little backstories and everyone is slightly mellowing. And Manfred thinks the solution to everyone's problems is a daughter swapping deal. So, let's, Daniel, let's you and I look at this from a purely logistical standpoint. You have two opposing factions, each with a strong claim on this title. Each head of the family has one daughter and no son, and they decide to marry each other's daughters, in which both claims are then mutually strengthened and in no way united. So this feud is going to continue in perpetuity, because if both men have sons from each other's daughters, the boys are going to become each other's uncles and each other's nephews, and each daughter would become her own father's mother-in-law. Bravo, your family tree is now a circle. This works on no levels. So, 
the the blokes are working it out. The blokes are all getting along famously now after, you know, venting their frustrations. We've done a little light stabbing. It's all good, bro. Hmm. The women folk are sort of swept off into their rooms. We don't need chicks cramping our style. So Isabella and Matilda get together with the not-dead Hippolyta. And, like again, this is just never addressed. And they all weep and wail about how virtuous the others are. And Matilda works herself up into a state because she's got some red-hot lust for Theodore, but she has to marry Isabella's gross dad instead. And she's upset... Not because she has to marry Isabella's gross dad, but because her lust for Theodore is dishonoring her mother because it's making her contemplate being disobedient. And I cannot handle these women. So Apollos is like, all right, girls, I, I've cheated death, apparently. I'm going to go straighten all this shit out. She goes to the church and talks with Jerome, the priest count, and begs him to help convince Manfred, first of all, not to marry Isabella. Hippolyta also begs that Matilda, her daughter, doesn't have to marry Isabella's dad. Manfred shows up at the church and he's like, woman, shut your pie hole. We worked it all out. We're definitely going to marry each other's daughters. We're BFFs now. And they get all very, whoa, bros, if, and they crush a bunch of beer cans on their foreheads and like, it's just frat boy central. That's easy when you're in a scoot vomit. <laughs> and then as Manfred is saying this, the grossest thing in this book, maybe on this podcast so far, happens. The statue of Alfonso the Good, which Manfred is standing directly under, starts to have a nosebleed all over Manfred. Quote, three drops of blood fell from the nose of Alfonso's statue. Daniel, do you remember earlier when a big helmet was the most insane thing we had heard? Because I miss those days. I think the big helmet's still weirder than the bleeding statue. Are you fucking kidding me? I feel like a bleeding statue is a more common motif than a giant helmet falling on you from nowhere. Bleeding out, uh, like I get maybe you get like the sort of statues of Jesus with like the blood at the you know. Like, nosebleed. It's that's a nosebleed. So, that is... Yeah, that's something so disgusting about nosebleed, and also so like kind of domestic. Uh, yeah. So the priest sees this cosmic nosebleed as quote the miraculous indication that the blood of Alfonso will never mix with that of Manfred, which is quite the assumption. Uh, and he, he sort of thinks that Manfred's whole race needs to be stamped from the earth. So I guess that means Matilda's life expectancy just got a lot shorter. Uh, and Manfred is just not having any of this. And he grabs Hippolyta and he's like, let's jet, baby, we got some divorcing to do. And she's like, okay, I am but your servant, my lord. <laughs> and I just, I'm not sure that she's passed the Turing test. I think this woman is a goddamn cuckoo clock. Manfred, you know him, you love him. Do I? He's a bad boy, but we all love him, really. Uh, he wears a little leather jacket right on his heart. Manfred's starting to suspect that something's going on between Theodore and Isabella. And he is, how about a guess? What, what do you think he's feeling going for? Like, how, how has he behaved so far? What do you think he's feeling now? Uh, I think he has behaved beautifully, rationally, calmly, not cocainally in the slightest. Well, so I think he's going to take this gracefully and realize she's too young for him. He's feeling irked and paranoid. So he needs to get the divorce of Hippolyta through ASAP. ASAP. You can say it two ways. He, he sees the servant Bianca in the corridor. You remember her, Bianca? And he scopes out what's going on between Isabella and Theodore. He's like, go on, you know, dish the dirt. 
Truly, how stands Isabella's heart? Sir, the vibes are a shambles. What do you think? You chased the woman and forced her to take sanctuary. Um, you, you think you're going to get a date out of this? Where did I go wrong? So she's like, yeah, I don't really know anything about Theodore and uh, Isabella. That said, there is not a soul in the castle, but would be rejoiced to have Theodore for our prince. Uh, I, uh, 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 rude. I, I mean, when it shall please heaven to call your highness to itself. So that's a good mm, Yeah, save. you covered it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, nice save, yeah. Um, Manfred is not pleased. Then a big hand turns up. Sure, let's, let's crank this evening up to 11. Manfred puts on a bit of a do and tries to ignore all the creepy goings on. He's got the keg. Yeah, keg. Bagpipes. <laughs> uh, hair and stuff of pottage. Uh, I don't know, all the sort of medieval things. Um, <laughs> during the banquet, he checks with Frederick that their daughter swap deal is still good. Bro, you still hot for my, my daughter? The fruit of my loins? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Frederick's like, yes. Great, I can't wait for us all to vacation creepily together. Maybe a couple's cruise. Yeah, it's truly sorted, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Later that night, Frederick goes to see Hippolyta in the oratory to gauge her feelings about the whole thing. He's like, you know, I don't know if you're happy with this Hippolyta. That's, that's why he's going up. She's not there, though. Someone else is. Frederick sees before him the fleshless jaws and empty sockets of a skeleton wrapped in a hermit's cowl. Remember the wood of Joppa, the skeleton tells him. Wast thou delivered from bondage to pursue carnal delights? There's a bondage BDSM carnal delights here joke, but that's low-hanging fruit, and we do not have that kind of cheap comedy on our show. No, yeah. Pursue the behest of heaven engraved on the sword and forget Matilda. So Frederick doesn't need telling twice and kind of quits the whole daughter swap deal. But, like, so, so is the hermit who helped rescue him, is he saying that Frederick has to be celibate forever? Like, Frederick is saying, I'm going to make this woman my new, you know, marchioness, my new wife. This is all very above board with her father's blessing and this political alliance. Frederick, Frederick's it, never allowed to have sex? No, isn't it something to do with... The, the hermit's a f***ing cop. Him marrying Matilda is also keeping Manfred in power. He was released from bondage to rescue Isabella to dethrone Manfred. Doesn't matter anyway, you don't question the dead. So Isabella's dad, who, you know, didn't realise he was in the Heathrow for ghosts and has just been haunted, rushes off to his own room to quietly s*** himself. How loudly would somebody normally s*** themselves? I don't know, Daniel. Uh, thoughts? <laughs> yeah, well, speaking from experience. <laughs> but yeah, Manfred's like, bro? You okay, bro? A servant finds Manfred and says, um, Theodore is out of jail again and is meeting some girl in the church all private and sexy-like. And Manfred goes, it must be Isabella. And he grabs a knife and rushes to the church. So again, we have uh, Isabella's foreshadowing from before saying, he would never do violence in a church. Well, your chickens are about to come home to roost. So he, he sneaks into the church. He, you know, overhears some sweet nothings being whispered sneaks up and he stabs Isabella for being a lion cheating hoe. Only it was Matilda he is stabbed. Is my daughter. Not, not Isabella. 
she but Matilda's. she's not a male heir so it's not that sad so matilda's on her deathbed everybody's upset so theodore's like jerome daddy marry me and matilda at her deathbed and frederick's like what pretensions hast thou to the princess and uh frederick no the hermit told you to give her up yeah Stop. But still though he's still got he's holding and the she's torch dying. he's holding the torch to her and theodore's she's like on the what on the torch he's holding a torch oh holding a torch gotcha and theodore's like those of a prince of the sovereign of a tranto so jerome starts to explain what theodore means and theodore's like shut up dad is this a season for explanations uh which is a funny bit i thought because there's a lot of backstories in this aren't there but apparently that's just this was a backstory too far so he's they just get married hamlet to the extreme right here they're going to be able to use the food from conrad's wedding and conrad's funeral for this wedding and funeral yes i was thinking that earlier about uh manfred marrying isabella as well they got a lot of yeah, snacks but the same venue <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've got it for a couple of hours so yeah you're right yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of uh savings to be made <laughs> yeah. i don't want to lose money on yeah, this party favors and things <laughs> um they get married matilda dies how sad is um, it isabella escorts hippolyta back to her chambers and en route they run into manfred you know him you love him who was coming to see matilda i don't know where he'd been but he was going to check on matilda the girl that he killed well you know after you stab someone you gotta go to the bathroom and dry heat for like 15 minutes all right i think we have to eat a hot pocket or something <laughs> <laughs> how do you even know what a, do you have hot pockets in this i don't know i don't know where it came from it's like divine aflatus um i just automatically always think of the most banal possible thing and i say it and Ma manfred's like what is she dead and then a clap of thunder at that instant shook the castle to its foundations. The earth rocked, and a clank of more than mortal armor was heard behind. The walls of the castle behind Manfred were thrown down with a mighty force, and the form of Alfonso, <gasps> dilated to an immense magnitude, Ooh. appeared in the center of the ruins. Ooh, wonder hunk activate, shape of hunk. <laughs> <laughs> Behold in Theodore, the true heir of Alfonso, said the vision. And having pronounced those words, accompanied by a clap of thunder, it ascended solemnly towards heaven, where the clouds parting asunder, the form of St. Nicholas was seen. And receiving Alfonso's shade, they were soon wrapped from mortal eyes into a blaze of glory. Well, I never. That's... That... All happened so fast, didn't it? I just like things have come to a head. People are dead. Uh, the the ghost has left of his own volition with potentially Santa. Uh, <laughs> Manfred concedes concedes that the game is up. He admits that his father poisoned Alfonso the Good years ago when they were on a crusade and claimed Otranto for himself. I'm not really sure where Frederick fits into this. Where does he get his claim, then? Uh, cousin... Sure. He's married to Alfonso. Oh, that's hot. Yeah. For Walpole. Getting all... Okay, yeah, well, queer reading that. Sure, <laughs> yeah. why Why not? Okay. It's uh, nearly the end of the tax year, so you've got to get all the queer readings. <laughs> <laughs> also, try and stop us. Who's going to stop us? Not you. Manfred kind of resents his dad. Quote, his crimes pursued him, yet he lost no Conrad, no Matilda. I pay the price of usurpation for all. He's a sad character, isn't he, Manfred? Oh, f off. He did plenty. He's... he's... But 
that bit where he's like trying to be really like cheerful at the do earlier on with Frederick and Frederick's not having it. I feel a bit like he so believes in it and he but also he knows it's wrong. Well, this is a very big hallmark of Gothic literature, which is, um, you know, something that your ancestor did long ago will pursue you down the generations and you'll be made to suffer for it. And Sin it's, to the father. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a very common thing, you know, issues of time and morality in this. Mm-hmm. Father Jerome steps in. Turns out he's not Theodore's real dad. Alfonso was Theodore's real dad. And, well, yeah, quite. Alfonso and Father Jerome met in the Holy Land, but when Alfonso was murdered by Manfred's dad, Theodore's mom ended up getting with Jerome, who, you know, we want want a little Thornbird's energy, a little hot priest energy. He wasn't a priest then. Oh, but she could sense it. And Jerome adopted young baby Theodore. Theodore, as we predicted, as was very heavy-handedly foreshadowed, is Alfonso's... Very, very heavy-handed. <laughs> he's Alfonso's heir, the true owner of Otranto. Everyone goes for a bit of a lie-down. And the next day, Manfred signs the abdication papers and takes Hippolyta, and they just get to go live elsewhere. That's nice for them. Nice, uh, nice statue of limitations you got there on the daughter murder. Well, they become monks and nuns, don't they? He becomes a monk and she becomes a nun. Oh, did I completely miss? I, I actually was going to ask what what do you think he did as like a, next. like a part time job? And this is this is a tweet I saw about Ted Cruz, but I think it applies to Manfred here. Yeah, he seems like the sort of guy who would get a job at a bowling alley and then get fired for fucking all the shoes. Right. That. Uh, <laughs> when he didn't do that, he became a monk. <laughs> Theodore, who has taken his rightful claim on a Toronto, he's super duper sad that Matilda is dead because they were like totally in love for the, what, maybe four and a half minutes they actually spent together. Isabella's dad, the the knight of the gigantic saber, is like, please marry my daughter so this book can be over and I can go away and we Oof. can, you know, conjoin our, our lines. And Theodore's like, no, can't do it heart's too broken (laughs) but then he and isabella talk about matilda a lot and they both cry a lot and they revel in their grief and he's like well maybe i will marry isabella because she'll let the memory of matilda be the third person in our marriage and we'll never have to move on and we can be in a weird sad ghost polycule forever queer reading so they get married and they live sadly ever after Okay, so I have a couple of questions for you. Why did Hippolyta make Matilda go pray to the statue of Alfonso every day? They make a real fucking meal out of that. Never explained. Uh, and Matilda's like, it, I cannot tell you why, for it is secret, trademark symbol. Because, yeah, because Hippolyta's really loyal to Manfred, isn't she? Yeah, so that seems like... Oh, and why didn't he tear down the statue and all of the paintings and things? Yeah, do a 1984 on this. Yeah. Rewrite history. Exactly. Why was Hippolyta rumored to be dead? I, As we discussed, I didn't even notice that bit. So who knows? There's loads of stuff going on with Hippolyta that we didn't even cover, isn't there? Oh, yeah, for sure. What was with the ghost, quote-unquote, with the brother's tutor who drowned himself? We get nothing more than that. Well, they just thought that because they're just all spooked, aren't they? But I think that is the thing that it only occurred to me discussing this with you that 
the astrologer clearly knew that the game was up and thought he might as well drown himself. That'd be so good if we had even a hint of that rather than just being like, your brother had a tutor, he drowned himself, bye! But he was an astrologer. We know what astrologers do. I think that's, that's all we need to know. That was, I think, for a book this not subtle, <laughs> that was a little subtle for this. That's the great thing, isn't it? No, it wasn't. Okay, go on, more questions. Is Frederick ever allowed to get married? Um, I think so. I hope, I hope that weird hermit has a massive crush on him and his ghost just follows him every time and warns him off getting married forever. That could y be it. You will saber only for me, my, my dulcet darling. Yeah, maybe that is it. Yeah, yeah queer right. reading. Yeah, who knew? At the 11th hour. Well, the end. The end. Would you like some casting? Yes, please. So, I, I really struggled with this for a while because this is one of the oddest books I've read and I was like, how do we make this? How do we take the weirdness of this book the sort of dreamlike quality paired with this very also active and dynamic and violent behavior. And the only live action director who I think could do something really cool with this is Akira Kurosawa. Uh. I think Toshiro Mifune would have the time of his life as Manfred. He would be disgusting and compelling and just unhinged and powerful. You know, you know Toshiro Mifune. He was the guy in Throne of Blood. He was the guy in Rashomon. The the, yeah, and he's, oh, the, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. the bandit in Rashomon. But he is a bit like Macbeth, isn't he, Manfred? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just I thought that he would he could really chew the scenery in a delightful way. Yes, and he's that's like, what we want. He's like charismatic and attractive enough where you you kind of root for him, but but he's also a bit sort of greasy and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now for our segment, bad Goodreads reviews. It was like reading a 1700s version of a Jerry Springer episode. One star. That's the best thing about it. <laughs> I know. I wanted to get spooky, but <laughs> it was only spoopy at best. Two stars. It's yeah, a good pun. <laughs> Is it, Daniel? Is it? And then an 18th century Sharknado. I had a blast. <laughs> yeah. Five stars. There we go. That's it. <laughs> Let's do some analysis. You wanted to talk a little bit about the form. Just like stylistically. This is hard to read. It's hard to read that, that there's the dialogue, there's no sort of uh, indents for dialogue, is there? And there are no quotation marks yeah. for dialogue. But more importantly, everybody's always interrupting each other. There's always these like M dashes where characters interrupt mm. each other. And I kind of didn't really know what that was about. Yeah, and, and there, are, there are very few paragraphs, sort of strange divisions of chapters. This is, I think it's important to note, this is the stylistic convention at the time. Novels are very new. Uh, but I, I kind of think this works for a modern audience, even though I don't think this was intentional at the time. This, this formatting that we're not used to nowadays, because we've sort of sorted all of that out, uh, it makes the text feel claustrophobic, yeah. frenetic, and weird. More alien, yeah. And I kind of like that, but you do have to be on your toes slightly because a lot happens in a very compact... So this is only 100 pages long. Every paragraph, something enormous yeah. happens. Or but some valuable information. Is yes, yeah. but you, you can very easily miss it. The thing about the interruption, though, in particular, that's not really like a formal thing, is it? Because mm. obviously other novels, like Pamela doesn't have much interruption. In this, almost... Moff Landers doesn't either. Yeah, everybody's just tripping over each other's sentences in this, and I think that's... That is... That's a deliberate that's choice deliberate, to make it phonetic, yes. and that's, you know... There's a sense of, like, a loss of reason and everything. You know? Competing interests yeah. and everyone jostling for power and yeah, things. Yeah, so it's, um, it's quite kind of histrionic, doesn't it? 
Yes, you know what I was thinking? Do you know the, um, oh, what's it called in opera? The mad scene in right. opera where people are just, uh, it's, it's sort of the height of emotion. People are sort of showing off their vocal range and they're, they're, it's sort of the history, most histrionic moment in any opera and things. Yeah, this is just all that. But it, this is nothing but yeah. that. That's how we bring up the G word. <gasps> the gothic. Yes. So this is the first gothic novel. What's that all about? Well, yeah, it's, so this is, uh, th there are sort of debates about what the first gothic novel is. I think most people settle on this one and then it died down a little bit and got going again much more prominently in the high gothic period, which was sort of like the, I think the 1790s was probably the, the golden age of high gothic. Right. Up, up to Frankenstein, yeah. so 1790s to 1810s. Right. How, do, how would you define the gothic? Very difficult to define. That's a... I would Horrible just say question to ask a kind you. of uh, playing on a sense of irrationality for spooky effect and also a sense of like the past weighing down on the present in a way that is kind of inescapable. Yeah, I think time yeah. is incredibly important. It, de it deals a lot with looking backward. Um, it's often very anti-Catholic. It's often very anti-aristocracy. Lots of like dodgy dealings and abuses of power, especially sexually. But it fetishizes all of the above as well, doesn't it? It, it, has, can it has it do. both ways. Yes. Yeah. Right? So this is also the period in which uh, some new scientific disciplines were getting going. So we got archaeology and geology. Hmm. Happen like this is... Well, Walpole was an antiquarian, wasn't he? So Yes, Yeah. exactly. And Erasmus Darwin was working in the High Gothic period, Charles Darwin's grandfather. Darwin didn't invent evolution. His grandfather was writing about it. So it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff looking backward and seeing, like, where did we come from? Where did we go wrong? What were the things we're, we're glad we shed? It, well, also, it's that sort of uh, the Enlightenment. It's like we're the master of our own fate. And then, but part of mm -hmm. learning is realizing that no, there are certain things that have informed the present that mm -hmm. you can't get out of. I think it, that's, yes. that's what the, the Gothic is about questioning the kind of pure rationality of the Enlightenment in a way that plays that up to an extreme extent, but it's part of a broader sort of like, hmm, maybe, yeah. maybe things aren't as clear cut as we thought they were. So, yeah, I think, but I think the big thing to take away from the Gothic is it's dealing with all of these things as tropes. So we have your spooky castles, you have your dark forests, you have your sexual exploitation, your aristocrats, your Catholics, your whatever. But the Gothic, the best I can summarize is it's about vibes. And it's it doesn't have to necessarily be scary. It's often spooky or creepy. Yeah. And oppressive. It's that sense of dread. Mm. It doesn't have to be scary though. And I think that's where people get confused. Something like um for contemporary films, something like Get Out or Ex Machina, those are far more gothic than say like a slasher film. Because of like what a sense of imprisonment and a sense of dread and isolation yeah. and the the person you trust can't be trusted and i wanted to talk for a minute about issues around people and stuff the the physical people and stuff yeah. descriptions of things not yeah. actions not dialogue but how we deal with the material world yeah and i thought this was a lot like mall yes. flanders yeah. attempting to write Sir Gawain or Beowulf. This is great, yeah, I like this. I, Do you? I, I buy into this completely, yeah. Well, because it's just, I feel like, oh, bless him, Walpole didn't, he was trying to ape medieval literature, but didn't get it right. He writes like an 18th century yeah. person. Because Beowulf and Gawain is all like, he had a crest, was of the finest filigree, and each, yes. each nub of filigree was golden encrusted. And then 
It's, and Mole Flanders, it's like there's none of that, no empirical it's register. And lots of stuff, yeah. it's, but there's just lists of it very blandly yeah. told. And Walpole's really trying to do the other, but he can't. He's he like, can't, yeah. yeah. But the, yeah, there's no, none of the detail or the poetry or the process. Yeah. It, it focused on sort of the number of things. Yeah, it's very quantity over quality. Yes. yes. Okay, so should we do yes. some advice? Yes, okay. please. Advise me. <laughs> if you are worried that you won't understand a text, uh, there are a lot of times where I was like, I just don't know anything about this period. Get a good critical edition. So that's usually something published by a university press. So um, something like Oxford World's Classics are great. Really anything where it says on the cover, edited by or introduction by, because what they do is they provide you with a lot of footnotes or endnotes, and these give you context. They explain whatever references you wouldn't get nowadays. So like, this was a big pop culture thing, and it's since been like lost to time. Um, they will translate any bits that are in other languages, or sometimes they'll just flat out explain what the heck a character is saying in brief. Um, uh, the problem is you can get a bit addicted to footnotes, I do. I like, love a footnote. what's this? Yeah, I have after to... a while you're like, I have two bookmarks in them at the time, where I am in the text and then where I am in oh, the right, footnotes. And I've, pages. I, I flip back and forth. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just so helpful yeah, yeah, to yeah. make you feel like I'm in on the joke now. Yeah. Right, so the clue to our next episode. This is our second Halloween episode this month, and we are covering perhaps the most famous ghost story in all classic literature after A Christmas Carol. Or maybe it's not a ghost story at all. Maybe somebody just goes sex-mad and hallucinates the whole thing. You decide. So please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. We also have a TikTok and an Instagram. Please subscribe wherever you listen. It really helps us out. Uh, and also do write into our email and suggest any texts you want us to cover. We we might well do. We've already covered several texts that people have requested yep, from us. Requests. Yep. Right. And we will see you all in two weeks you got anything to say over there no you what happened to all the energy you had you i am tired now you spent it all you yeah you spent it all in the first herald (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening to save me from my shelf our music is the overture to don giovanni by mozart and cover art is by katherine wu Our thanks to Aston university's center for critical inquiry and to society and culture for funding the startup of this podcast contact us at save me from my shelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on twitter and do not i'm going to remind you do not forget to rate review and subscribe do not forget thank you